You don't need a study to tell you that aging and fatigue go hand in hand. Nevertheless, my friends at Nutritional Therapeutics, makers of NT Factor, point to 16 studies, all peer-reviewed and published in medical journals, showing that NT Factor can reduce fatigue, while at the same time, age-related changes in the cells are reversed. For 30 years, the makers of NT Factor have worked to improve our health spans by focusing on the mitochondria, the energy powerhouses of our cells. Their science shows that NT Factor, which I don't go a day without and recommend to my patients, improves our energy and prevents the deterioration that accompanies aging. It promises that our day-to-day lives will be improved, and they keep proving it in studies that include placebo-controlled trials, both in the academic institutions and in medical practices like mine. You can find NT Factor at your favorite health food store or online retailer, or to order direct, go to ntfactor.com. That's ntfactor.com. Don't let tiredness and fatigue rob your senior years. Invest regularly in the anti-aging benefit of NT Factor at ntfactor.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today, the subject is How to Prevent Dementia. We're talking about a book entitled How to Prevent Dementia, Understanding and Managing Cognitive Decline. Our guest is the author, Dr. Richard Restack. He's written over 20 books on the human brain, including The Complete Guide to Memory. Uh, He uh, has also uh, appeared in a variety of media. He's a regular lecturer. Uh, He's prepared commentaries for the National Public Radio at All Things Considered. And he's appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, and Discovery Channel programs talking about uh, brain-related issues. Today, we're going to talk about dementia and cognitive decline. There's just so much to unpack here. I'm very anxious to have this conversation with Dr. Restek. Dr. Restek, welcome to Intelligent Medicine. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Ron. I'm happy to be here. It's my great pleasure. So, um, so first of all, uh, let's talk about the scope of the problem, because there are dire predictions that uh, with the baby boomer generation aging progressively, uh, that we're going to be stuck with tens of millions of aging boomers who are suffering from severe cognitive decline and dementia, perhaps Alzheimer's disease. So what's the scope of this? Well, you've got between six and seven million Americans that are age 65 or older living with Alzheimer's in this very year, 2023. 70, 70, uh, almost 75% of them are age 75 or older. The incidence in 2025, which is almost tomorrow, is going to be expected to reach uh, 7.1 million, which was a 27% increase in just uh, two years. So if you extrapolate the, these numbers and further into the future, the percentage of, uh, of uh, the percentage of people with Alzheimer's is a little bit panic-inducing. At 2050 or earlier, there's the absence of a curative breakthrough, the number of people aged 65 and older with Alzheimer's projected to reach 12.7 million people. So the death from Alzheimer's has doubled 
between 2000 and 2019. So what we've got, without going into even more numbers, is that we really need a cure for this. We need to get this under control uh, because the numbers just keep, uh, it's almost like compound interest in a bank, just keeps rising. So let's uh, do some definition here because uh, there's classic Alzheimer's disease. There are other forms of dementia. Uh, and then there is what's called uh, age-related memory impairment, which may be physiologic or natural. Uh, is it inevitable that we'll all experience some degree of cognitive decline, memory impairment uh, as we age? Or are they outliers, uh, you know, nonagenarians and centenarians who survive with pretty pretty good memory intact? Well, it's a natural part of aging to have your memory, particularly rapid retrieval, affected. If you turn on Jeopardy, I've yet to see the first 70 or 85-year-old person on there as a contestant. Not because somebody of that age couldn't answer the questions, but they couldn't come up with the answers quite as quickly as is needed. So what you've got is a slowing of the process without necessarily uh, a uh, devaluation uh, or ruining of the process of memory. Well, I got an object lesson of this over Thanksgiving when uh, I played a memory game with a five-year-old, uh, which is called Sardines. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, you look at a card and you try and memorize uh, all the objects on the card, uh, and then you match them. And uh, she beat me. Uh, she, oh. Admittedly, she may be more familiar with the game, having played it innumerable times uh but and i was a novice uh but i got to say her her memory her visual memory was just astounding uh so you know maybe just maybe uh i wouldn't want to go back to medical school and have to do all that uh, cramming and memorization well i'll have to look at that game it's called sardine just like the, the animal right the sardine yep yeah, and it, it's yeah. Uh, it's it's like you're opening up uh, a, a can of sardines, but the sardines have costumes, and some are wearing right. a bikini, and some are wearing you know fur, uh, some have hats, and you're supposed to to uh, match your cards to the sardines. It's it I you know actually pretty good uh, cognitive test, you know maybe uh, yeah. equivalent to some of the cognitive tests that you perform uh, when you're evalu evaluating a patient for dementia. So okay, so so there's. There's Alzheimer's disease, but it, it, does Alzheimer's disease have some unique characteristics that differentiate it from just, you know, people losing it as they get older? Well, it's the most common cause of dementia, uh, and it usually presents itself with a memory impairment. Uh, not always. In fact, the original case that was seen by Dr. Alzheimer did not present with a memory problem, presented with paranoia, suspicion. So this is one of the points that I make in the book, that uh, the method that we have separating these diseases is somewhat artificial. And it's not certainly artificial separating what have been labeled as psychiatric diseases from neurologic diseases. Alzheimer himself is a psychiatrist, this is professor of psychiatry, because at that time they thought all sorts of behavioral dysfunctions were secondary to problems in the brain. And we're moving back towards that with the hybrid um, specialty of neuropsychiatry. And that is a, an, a person like myself that's trained fully in one uh, specialty like neurology. 
psychology and they have at least two years of training in the other one like psychiatry that they can call themselves a neuropsychiatrist and then they see people with behavioral changes and try to figure out you know is this due to something psychiatric or is this due to uh, some type of brain disease but it is a, it is an organic brain disease there you know on autopsy you actually see changes in the brain but uh, you know, in Alzheimer's disease for example it's characterized by uh, amyloid plaque fibrillary tangles, characteristic appearances under the microscope. Uh, but there's some people who experience cognitive decline because they've had perhaps uh, cerebrovascular disease, a lot of mini strokes, which would appear like right. little little white patches in the brain, of, you know, dead or non-functional tissue. That's a little different, right? Yes, it is. But it's interesting that uh, the two are often combined. You don't often see just a pure a case pure. Mm-hmm. about you can, but uh, usually it's combined with a little bit of this uh, vascular dementia, either from hypertension or from small vessel disease. And you've got the combination of the two of them causing the dementia. So I see a lot of patients who are, you know, in their 60s and 70s, uh, and many of them complain of poor memory, and they're worried that they're progressing towards one of these dread conditions. but sometimes I attribute this to sort of an age-related anxiety about memory. Yes, maybe your memory is not as sharp as it once was, but does that necessarily portend a descent into uh, a severe neurodegenerative disease? That's a good point. In fact, you mentioned uh, a few moments ago about uh, getting together with a child relative and playing the game of sardine. Um, around the time of uh, getting together in family groups, um, it's not uncommon for grandparents or people of that age not to remember the grandchildren's names. It's just common. And people say to me, well, does that mean they're coming down with dementia? You have to know, first of all, what interest they have in their grandchildren. Some people are very interested in their grandchildren, some people aren't. So those that aren't may well not remember their names. So it's not not necessarily a sign that they're getting dementia. You have to put everything into context. The two things about dementia are, number one, there's two questions you can ask anybody, uh, about anybody, I should say, that will give you a pretty good idea whether they're coming down with dementia. Number one, are they having changes in their personality that are very, you know, quite dramatic? Because by the time most of us reach adulthood, We've uh, developed a uh, certain personality. We respond to things in a certain way. We have ways of managing stress. We have ways of managing interpersonal conflicts. And uh, we use those through our lifetime. And if we suddenly these things break down and there's sudden temper tantrums and uh, difficult behavior and things like that, that's the first thing. If that's yes, that's a sign that they probably have a dementia. But you have to ask the second question. Does it interfere with family life? Does it interfere with uh, socialization, getting along with people? If the answer to that's no, then probably they have mild cognitive impairment. If the answer to that is yes, then uh, both yes to the first question and yes to the second, they more than likely have an early dementia. So how do you, how do you know that you're on a path towards uh, dementia or 
or Alzheimer's. Uh, I understand now there are newfangled tests, there are imaging tests, they're even proposing uh, blood tests, and then of course there are the conventional uh, cognitive tests that you can do in a doctor's office or in a psychometrician's office. You know the specialists who specialize in testing for intelligence mm-hmm. and so on. So, uh, what combination of, of testing yields a diagnosis? Well, it's really a matter of how much does do we want to have the diagnosis. I mean, the patient and the patient's family have to be a very important part of the uh, deciding whether we're going to do these blood tests, these spinal fluid tests, these brain imaging tests, these neuropsychological tests, putting them all together um, to increase the chances of diagnosing either positive or negative the president the presence of uh, dementia. So it's not just a matter of can we do it, it's why are we doing it, who wants it, and all that. But we're really moving quickly into an era, era uh, and a area of being able to diagnose it with some degree of precision and some degree also of uh, measuring it in people who uh, uh, don't have any signs of it now but are likely to get it later. later. Yeah, I guess there, there are social concerns, you know, for example, you know, as a person capable of handling their finances or they're prey to, you know, different types of uh, fraud. Uh, and, you know, sometimes these people get taken for a ride because uh, sometimes uh, criminals prey on these folks. Uh, but there's also the issue of treatment. And until recently, there really wasn't much to offer. And, you know, now we're getting to the point where, and we'll talk about this a little later, you know, some of the treatments are emerging. But before we get to the this discussing uh, treatment, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that are risk factors for cognitive decline or dementia. And you, you mentioned some of the classic ones, but you also mentioned some uh, interesting ones that I hadn't even thought of. Uh, for example, hearing loss. You, in your book, you mentioned hearing loss as a risk factor. So talk about that. Hearing loss is probably the foremost um, predictor of dementia in the world. In other words, when you look at uh, Alzheimer's or dementia as a worldwide problem, uh, hearing loss is right up there among the uh, causes of it because with the hearing loss i give a couple of examples in there of people mishearing something the favorite example i use is uh, the discussion of three people were discussing what their favorite pet was and one said well i was raised in a family where they had a lot of dogs so i'm dogs are for me i like dogs and the other one said well i my parents had cats and I kind of like cats, so I, I would have cats. And the third one said, I like vicious pets. And uh, everybody kind of uh, looked and said, vicious pets? What do you mean vicious pets? He said, I didn't say vicious pets. I said fish as pets. As pets. Okay, there you go. So, <laughs> yeah. so it, it sounds like so the, 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 these hear, hearing loss can lead to isolation. It can lead to depression. Uh, and it can kind of slow your interaction with the world. But could it also be a manifestation of general neurological decline? You know, if, if the, the cells in the brain aren't working very well, maybe they're not working very well in the sensory organs. So is it, uh, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? What happens is if somebody has a hearing problem, then they devote parts of their brain to simply getting the senses correct, hearing it correctly. 
parts of the brain that ordinarily would be used for higher order process, hmm. thinking of analogy, metaphors, responses, things like that. Instead, they're focused in completely on trying to make sure one word is just as it was. And take that particular example I gave you. If someone hears this thing, uh, fish as pets, as they hear instead vicious pets, well, it's going to steer their thinking processes along a way that somebody would say, well, they certainly had an odd response to the, the uh, preference for fish that someone expressed. He got kind of said, what's the matter with you? I mean, why would you say that? That this sort of response. So that's why hearing can lead to, first of all, can lead to paranoia, because people will think that someone's yeah. talking about them, really not. Um, so it's really, uh, it leads to responses that are not plugged into the actual reality of what's going on. That's the best way to put it. Hmm, interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, certain dietary factors, because, you know, we know that uh, Americans consume increasingly ultra-processed foods. Uh, this has a deleterious effect on metabolism, leads to obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cerebrovascular disease. So uh, could diet be considered a risk factor? Well, it could. I mean, the, many foods are processed. There's no harm. In fact, you have to process them. Milk has to be pasteurized. So that's a process. So you could say that's processed food when you're drinking milk, but that's good for you. What we're really concerned about is what's called ultra-processed food. That's where you put things in the food to uh, help its shelf life, uh, to uh, increase its flavor, uh, things like that. And you're putting in chemicals and reverse things like that. And you say, well, how can you tell an ultra-processed food? Just look at the ingredients in it. If you have an ingredient that looks like an encyclopedia, it runs, you know, eight or inches, five or six inches long. And you know, you're dealing with an ultra processed food. You probably ought to just leave it alone. Mm -hmm. well, you also talk about uh, certain beverages. Uh, on the one hand, alcohol, which is negative in terms of risk, negative factor. And, but also on the other hand, coffee and tea, which seem to be protective factors. Yeah. Coffee and tea actually have turned out to be really interesting. They've, they do in, uh, increase uh, mental acuity, and uh, they seem to lead to a, uh, less chances of getting uh, Alzheimer's. I, I do want to mention, as we're discussing it, Ron, that any of the listeners, I mean, th this is something that they've got to discuss with their doctor, because uh, caffeine does have effects on the heart, and it's been shown that people who have labile or what we call blood pressure that changes a lot, can't be relied upon and all that, they probably shouldn't be drinking a lot of caffeine. But people who are not hypertensive, or their hypertension is more of a, uh, a level thing that doesn't deviate from one time to another, they may benefit from uh, the, uh, the, the caffeine in uh, tea and in coffee. Possibly other alcohol, substances, you, may, you know, the polyphenols, you know, that are the beneficial substances that accompany uh, the caffeine in those beverages. Yes, yes, of course. Some of these things are put in and uh, some are helpful, some aren't. Some are just neutral. But uh, I think the closer you come to the natural product, particularly when you talk about vegetables and things, the better. 
Um, that's why salted vegetables with the artificial salt and I'm like usually canned vegetables, things like that, uh, are something to be careful about. You just want to read the labels and see, you know, how much has been put in it. Uh, the Mediterranean dog we've heard about, but it certainly does seem to be the ideal type diet. And there's some new think on, on alcohol as well, because it was once thought that uh, we should encourage people to drink a little red wine. Uh, alcohol was had a preventive effect, but uh, uh, we've got some new think about its effects on uh, cognitive function. Yeah, alcohol. The problem with that was they used to compare somebody who drank one or two drinks a day against teetotalers, people who weren't drinking anything. And they found that the people who had one or two drinks a day actually did better than people that didn't drink anything. So they said, oh, well, that proves that uh, a little bit of alcohol is good for you. And that was the way it was up until about a year ago. And suddenly somebody thought, well, let's look a little more carefully at that group of that population that are listed as teetotalers. And what you find is that many of these people were heavy drinkers earlier in life. And then they stopped because yeah. they, you know, do. And, but now they're starting to get some of the bad effects of alcohol coming on. And that's why uh, the people who are, you know, drinking very, very mildly are do better than those. If you take a group like uh, Mormons or uh, uh, Seven Day Adventists or any of these people who don't drink alcohol at all and make them be the population that are the teetotalers, you'll see that they do a lot better on uh, testing than people that drink uh, one or two drinks so by themselves. So anyway, I, I tell all my patients, if you're over 65, certainly over 70, you've had all the alcohol in your life you need, just stop cold, stop it all. <laughs> I'm sort of with you. I'm a very, very sporadic drinker, although I must admit Thanksgiving, uh, you know, challenged me a little bit. Uh, so, okay, so... Keto diet, you actually talk about keto diet and intermittent fasting as a plausible strategy, maybe for delaying uh, cognitive decline. Uh, any evidence of that? Well, in animals, uh, you can show that by uh, starving them, uh, just so they're eating just enough to, to live and all that a little bit more, that they do live longer and that they do better on mazes and running mazes and other things that... Uh, indicate cognitive function so now it's probably true that um, the same thing would hold with humans but i'm not sure many people would want to be living you know just on the very edge of the caloric requirements just to stay alive uh, i don't think that would be appealing to too many people as they sometimes say uh you may not you may live longer but for sure it's going to seem like longer <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Okay. So, uh, all right. So, uh, what about uh, another factor that has been discussed lately is is head injuries and even relatively minor traumas, you know, like the high school football player who has an occasional concussion or the, you know, kids who head the ball playing, uh, you know, soccer, uh, that uh, at least for some susceptible individuals, this can actually accelerate uh brain deterioration well, i think it does and uh, to an unknown degree but the head injury is not good for you so we should try to eliminate as best we can head injuries particularly repetitive head injuries 
That's why students, or I should say athletes, who have had a mild concussion, they should be out of playing the sport for at least several weeks. Mm-hmm. All right, good point at which to pause because, you know, we discussed uh, the different dementias. We discussed uh, some of the risk factors. I want to continue on the discussion path, uh, looking at some additional risk factors. We want to talk a little bit about stress and exercise, brain games, you know, things like, uh, you know, crossword puzzles and uh, specific brain exercises. Uh, also, talk a little bit about uh, the new therapies. We're the dawning of the age. We're at the dawning of the age where uh, we're considering using high-tech medical inve- interventions to treat Alzheimer's. Uh, are they ready for prime time? We'll ask today's guest, Dr. Richard Restack, author of How to Prevent Dementia, Understanding and Managing Cognitive Decline. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and we'll be right back with more of today's Intelligent Medicine podcast. 